Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Time now for the GX on Agriculture podcast. Brought to you by Trustmark Insurance in Melville. Trust us with what matters most. GX on Agriculture with Doug Falconer. Good afternoon and welcome to GX on Agriculture. Coming up on today's program, Statistics Canada has cut its final canola production estimate by nearly 1 million metric tons compared to the September estimate. We'll hear from Ken Ball, a senior commodity futures advisor with PI Financial in Winnipeg. Meantime, federal amendments to Bill C-21 have firearm owners like hunters and farmers in Saskatchewan upset. Ray Orb, the president of the Saskatchewan Association of Rural Municipalities, it is adding his organization to the ones who think the bill goes too far. We'll hear from him on today's program. Soil testing in the fall is a good way to determine fertility needs for the spring, and the key to a good fertility plan is a representative soil sample. We'll hear from Dr. Diane Knight, and she will explain how to understand your lab test results. And when managing dead stock, pork producers are encouraged to consider their own location, management, and biosecurity situations when deciding on the best option. We'll hear from Dr. Terry Fonsted, the Associate Vice President of Research with the University of Saskatchewan. All of those stories and much more coming up on today's edition of GX on Agriculture. But first, it's time for the Agriculture Outlook with Precision Weather. And that's a presentation of Milligan Bio. Milligan Bio now offers bio meal for your livestock, giving your animals more protein, more energy, and more of what they need. It's also brought to you by Sean Prahitka, your Remax Blue Chip Ag Division Specialist. Welcome back to GX on Agriculture. Statistics Canada has cut its final canola production estimate by nearly 1 million metric tons compared to the September estimate. This morning, Statistics Canada pegged canola production at 18,170,000 metric tons. That compares to the 19.1 million metric ton projection made during the harvest season. Here in Saskatchewan, the canola crop is pegged at 9.5 million metric tons with an average yield of 37 bushels an acre. Average yields in Alberta and Manitoba were lower than original projections at 38.1 and 39.4 bushels per acre, respectively. Meantime, the StatScan wheat estimate is 33,820,000 metric tons or almost 880,000 metric tons lower than the September estimate. However, it's still the third largest. In Saskatchewan, wheat production was 14.8 million metric tons with an average yield of 41.4 bushels an acre. For a reaction on the StatScan final crop estimates, here's Ken Ball, a senior commodity futures advisor with PI Financial in Winnipeg. I was expecting the crop number myself to go down a shade, uh, you know, maybe two, three hundred thousand tons, but a drop of nine hundred thousand is 
very significant considering the crop wasn't all that large to start with. So it did catch people off guard. I think I don't think too many people thought canola yields were that that low. But um, you know, this was a surveyed report, so it'll be the number for now. And we've got a fairly firm day going in canola. It's hard to tell if it's all due to the crop report or not because we've got a lot of gyrations and spreading going on with the collapse in soybean oil and other things going on. But canola certainly is uh, showing some degree of strength after the report anyway. He explains what's causing the drop in soybean oil in recent days. A combination of things. There was, there was a tremendously huge speculative long position that steadily built up in bean oil, and all it needed was a trigger to create a sell-off, and that trigger came with the EPA uh, announcing their projections for uh, biofuel blending requirements, and they were a fair bit lower than expected. Not dramatically lower, but low enough to trigger the sell-off. And with the size of the spec long position, once those things get rolling, they just fuel themselves. So that is the end of the bull market in bean oil for now, but the sell-off will get overdone and it will rebound a bit for sure. But uh, that likely is the end of the, the bull market in bean oil for the time being anyway. Ball notes the StatsCan report also saw a decline in wheat production estimates. A little bit. I mean, the spring wheat never went from 26.1 to 25.7. I think most people thought it would stay the same or even go a little bit higher. This one really surprised me even more than the canola because some of the reports we had for spring wheat yields, especially across the northern half of the prairies, were beyond spectacular. I've got dozens of growers across northern Alberta and northern Saskatchewan who recorded their best overall average spring wheat yields in, in their lives. So I was a bit surprised to see that. But again, the yield was probably dragged down by the poor yields in some of the southern and in the western parts of Saskatchewan where the, you know, the yields weren't that good. But again, I was a little bit surprised. But the difference there isn't huge, and it hasn't had any significant impact. It doesn't seem on the wheat markets at all. He comments on some of the other crop estimates. Well, barley and oats came out very strong, and that's partly also why I was surprised at the spring wheat number, because it, you know, in the same areas where the spring wheat yields seem to be very strong, you know, the barley and oat yields are also spectacular in some areas and you know the oat number in particular is big enough that in a small oat market that we have in north america it is definitely putting some pressure on the oat prices even already and then the barley crop was up a fair bit as well but we, we certainly were hearing big yields there but everything else was you know more or less as expected ball says these estimates come from a survey and not from satellite technology from previous reports well, that's going to vary from year to year because, you know, obviously the, you know, the weather modeling, vegetation analysis, satellite imagery and so on, it seems like they've got it down to a reasonably good system, but uh, you can get such variations in weather from year to year that uh, you can't really tell how well the system will deal with certain fluctuations and changes in the weather, especially over the course of the growing season. So it's still taking everyone a while to get used to this. and. Uh, it is a bit tough to compare a surveyed yield. You know, if we had a surveyed yield in August and, we, and, we, and growers gave a certain yield and then we found out at harvest that everybody was reporting better yields, we'd have a good foundation for expecting the crop number to go up. But we can't make that comparison with this system now, so it's a little bit challenging still for the industry. He says it's not like comparing apples to oranges. Well, not quite, but it's, it, it, there's not quite 100% confidence in the modeling system. StatsCan seems to think they've got it down perfect, but there really is no such thing as a perfect weather satellite an analysis system. Uh, everybody else does it, but nobody else relies on it 100% except StatsCan. Ball adds there's no guarantee that the survey numbers are correct either. No, there never has been. I mean, everything is kind of plus or minus 2 or 3 or 4% at all times, uh, but you know, they're just the best estimates we can come up with right now. Ken Ball is a senior commodity futures advisor with PI Financial in Winnipeg. This morning, Statistics Canada cut its canola estimate by nearly 1 million metric tons 
down to 18,170,000 tonnes. The wheat forecast is about 880,000 metric tonnes lower at 33.82 million tonnes. It's time now for the Ag Review portion of our program, and that's a presentation of New Era Ag Technologies in Swan River. GX94, Ag Review. U.S. President Joe Biden has signed a bill to avert a freight rail strike that he says could have plunged the country into a catastrophic recession. The bill binds rail companies and workers to a proposed settlement that was reached in September, but rejected by some of the unions involved. Biden says the bill is needed despite its lack of more paid sick leave. I know this was a tough vote for members of both parties. It was a tough for me, but it was the right thing to do at the moment to save jobs, to protect millions of working families from harm and disruption, and to keep supply chains stable around the holidays. Biden says a strike would have sunk the U.S. economy, causing roughly 765,000 job losses by rupturing supply chains. Meanwhile, U.S. President Joe Biden's administration has unveiled a three-year proposal to expand the U.S. biofuels policy with bigger volume mandates and, for the first time, to include a pathway for electric vehicle manufacturers to generate lucrative credits. Biden wants to fight climate change by reducing fossil fuel use in America's transport sector, currently the source of around a quarter of the country's greenhouse gases. Under the plan announced by the Environmental Protection Agency, oil refiners will be required to add 20.82 billion gallons of biofuels to their fuel in 2023, 21.87 billion gallons in 2024, and 22.68 billion gallons in 2025. Those volumes will include more than 15 billion gallons per year of conventional biofuels like corn-based ethanol, with the rest made up by advanced fuels like those made from switchgrass, animal fats, or methane from dairy farms and landfills. Canola is another step closer to seeing major new demand from producers of advanced biofuels as the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency has published its final rule approving the use of canola oil for renewable diesel, sustainable aviation fuel, and other advanced biofuels under the Renewable Fuel Standard. Compared to older biofuels such as biodiesel, the chemistry of renewable diesel and sustainable aviation fuel is much closer to the fossil fuels they're meant to replace, making them easier to use as a replacement in combustion engines. Demand for these advanced fuels is increasing as governments implement lower carbon fuel standards. The Canola Council of Canada notes the EPA found canola-based fuels offer significantly lower life cycle greenhouse gas emissions than fossil-based fuels up to 90% lower when compared with traditional diesel. Demand for farm equipment should remain high through 2023, despite higher interest rates and projected price increases. That's according to Farm Credit Canada. While the outlook attributes much of the current demand to relatively high commodity prices, combined with strong farm cash receipts, it's also because orders aren't being filled on schedule as the COVID-era supply chain hangover continues. 
In its outlook, FCC said it is likely that inventory will remain low through 2024 as demand remains strong and manufacturers catch up on pre-orders. And in terms of catch-up, it appears the sector isn't out of the woods. Strong demand for farm equipment for the rest of 2022 is also expected to reduce inventory levels, which will put upward pressure on prices. And Federal Agriculture Minister Marie-Claude Bibeau will be in Regina tomorrow to visit the Canadian Western Agribition and meet with industry stakeholders. The discussions will be focused on trade, Canada's new Indo-Pacific strategy, and Canada's first Indo-Pacific agriculture and agri-food office. It's time now for the livestock market conditions, and that's a presentation of the Yorkton Crossing Retirement Village. Livestock Market Conditions. U.S. live cattle futures for February are trading at 156.05 this hour. That's up 62. April live cattle trading at 159.67, up 42. January feeder cattle trading at 182.70, up 162. March feeder cattle trading at 185.40, up 110. February lean hogs trading at 90.27, up 107. April lean hogs trading at 95.62, up 137. And that's the livestock market conditions. Federal amendments to Bill C-21 have firearm owners like hunters and farmers in Saskatchewan upset. Ray Orb, the president of the Saskatchewan Association of Rural Municipalities, is adding his organization to the ones who think the bill goes too far. Orb says many hunters have semi-automatic long arms and handguns for a reason, and they've had them for years, taking the appropriate safety courses all along. Well, we've been watching the uh, the bill uh, right from the onset, and uh, we've had we had some concerns with the bill, and we we did note that the uh, that the handgun. Uh, uh, freeze was uh, was imposed, and uh, we had concerns about that. And all along, we've been reassured by the federal government that it would not affect hunters uh, or, or ranchers, the farmers that had uh, firearms uh, used for the for purposes on their farms or, or for hunting. But now we see that there are amendments that have been proposed that do exactly that. They affect farmers. Uh, ranchers in this province that use uh, uh, hunting rifles, uh, you know, shotguns to be able to protect their livestock, but also uh, hunting and, and the same for, for hunters in this province. And really overnight what they're doing is uh, criminalizing uh, uh, hunters uh, that, are, that are legal gun owners, and we don't think that's proper. We think the government should reconsider those amendments. Orb was asked about semi-automatic guns and hunting. Well, the, these amendments are in, uh, in in particular are to do with the uh, with rifles and shotguns that can be used for hunting. And uh, many hunters have them for a reason because they they've had them probably for several years. Uh, they're familiar with those guns. Many of those hunters would have taken hunter safety uh, courses using those uh, using those rifles or shotguns. So they're very familiar with them, and uh, you know they're very accurate, and uh, they are uh, they're good at uh, at getting the uh, the game that they're that they're searching for. So because they'd be familiar with those guns, they are they are uh, licensed through. Uh, 
through a, uh, a possession acquisition license. So they are legal gun owners. So they are not the ones that should be targeted by the federal government. Instead, you know, we feel that the federal government should be going after illegal gun owners or people that are bringing guns in illegally uh, from uh, outside the country. And uh, they could be spending their, mother, their money, uh, you know, in a much better way. Orb says the SARM Board of Directors will be meeting on this issue and hopes to meet with the Chief Firearms Registrar in Saskatchewan to discuss the issue as well. Well, because there are, there are many uh, gun owners in this, in this province, I'm sure we're going to be hearing from a lot of them in the rural areas of the next, uh, in the next while, but uh, also um, our board will um, most likely decide to uh, pursue this, um, you know, politically. Uh, the House of Commons, you know, there is an opposition to this. Uh, I know we know that the Conservative government is opposed to it. I'm thinking there may be other members, uh, you know, in the uh, House of Commons that are also against it. The Senate is also uh, an entity where we, the entity where we we can pursue uh, opposition to this. However, I think these are uh, regulations, so. Uh, the minister himself is the one we need to talk to on this issue, and that's uh, Minister Mendocino. Orb expects more opposition to the federal changes. It's very frustrating because we've been told uh, all along by federal government, especially ministers. We we met with Minister Blair uh, not too many years ago when he was in that position that uh, Minister Mendocino is, and he reassured us that um, they were not targeting legal gun owners in Saskatchewan. They were not targeting ranchers, farmers, or hunters. But now it seems the federal government is, is doing exactly that. And so I think we're gonna see huge pushback uh, from our province. I know that our province has already issued some statements on the opposition of these amendments. So I think we'll be hearing a lot more about this in the near future. Ray Orb is the president of SARM. Please stay tuned. GX on Agriculture will be back right after this. Welcome back to GX on Agriculture. I'm Doug Falconer. It's cloudy and minus 24 degrees in the Yorkton-Melville region. I'll have your complete weather details coming up at 1 o'clock. Soil testing in the fall is a good way to determine fertility needs for the spring, and the key to a good fertility plan is a representative soil sample. Dr. Diane Knight is a professor of soil science at the University of Saskatchewan's College of Agriculture and Bioresources. She explains how to understand your lab test results. Most labs have roughly the same information that they deliver to you. And I actually, for this, I printed off two different ones so that I can just sort of glance at them. Um, they're the, the basic information, so they all report what they call soil test characteristics. And it might be under a different title depending on what lab you send it to. But it's things like pH, electrical conductivity, which is called EC on your soil test. Um, uh, the most of them have a salinity rating um, and some texture measurement for you. So loam, sandy loam, something like that, and then nutrients. And they're all sort of presented in slightly different ways, uh, depending on what lab it is that you're you're dealing with. She says it's hard to compare results from two different labs. They'll have this, and, and the reason is that they will use, they might use different ways of extracting nutrients. And those will modify the actual number that you get. It'll, 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 yeah. So 
so generally yes but not on a on a small level because I, I know that one of the labs uses a Kelowna method for phosphorus and most labs use what we call the Olson P method and that's going to influence the actual number that you get back from the lab. Knight also has these comments. On expectations, right? Um, so depending on where you are in the province, you can only achieve what that area will let you achieve. And I'm talking mostly about organic matter. So when we're down in the organic matter building in the soil depends on how much growth you can get, how much um, residue is returned back into the soil. So in the brown soil zone, it's really limited by water and, and heat. So you don't have, you can't build organic matter to the same extent as you could in the moist black soil zone that's much north or uh, farther north. Also, if you have a sandy soil, it's really hard to build organic matter in a sand. So be realistic about what you have. So, you know, if you have 2% organic matter in a brown soil zone, you're not ever gonna get up to the 5% or, or it's very unlikely you will. I guess it's not what that region will hold for you. Dr. Diane Knight is a professor of soil science at the University of Saskatchewan's College of Agriculture and Bioresources. She made her comments on the Pulse of the Prairies podcast. It's time now for your commodities update, and that's a presentation of Hackman Feeds. Commodities Update. Canola futures are trading up across the board this afternoon. January canola trading at 856.40, up $41.60. March canola trading at 849.50, up $36.70. March Minneapolis wheat trading at 9.23 and a quarter, down 14 and three quarters of a cent. March Kansas City wheat trading at 8.70 and a half, down 19 and three quarters of a cent. March Chicago wheat trading at 7.62 and three quarters, down 20 and a quarter cents. March corn trading at 6.46 and three quarters down 13 and three quarters of a cent. January soybeans trading at 14.36 and three quarters, up seven cents. December, and make that March, oats trading at 3.59 per bushel, down 19 and a half cents. And that's the commodities update. Welcome back to GX on Agriculture. When managing dead stock, Pork producers are encouraged to consider their own location, management, and biosecurity situations when deciding on the best option. Dr. Terry Fonstad, the Associate Vice President of Research with the University of Saskatchewan, tells us why it's become such a big issue. Well, prior to 2002 when BSE came, we had rendering plants that would pick up uh, all the dead stock because it had value. You could make meat and bone meal out of it and you could use it for a feedstock. But when the BSE came, all of a sudden their rendering plants couldn't use it. They became a cost. Then they had to start charging for picking it up. Well, then people started to realize that there was a cost to dead stock management look for other options. He explains how dead stock in the swine sector is typically addressed nowadays. 
Well, it really depends on your type of barn. So if it's a you know if it's a high high security barn, if it's at the front of the system like a sow barn, you really got tight security. If it's a feeder barn, maybe you're doing a, you can let the rendering plant pick up there. But then it depends on where you are, how far you are from from those kind of services. It depends on the geology of the site. Depends on what kind of operation it is. So I guess the the answer is it depends. Fonstead outlines some alternatives that are available. Well, if you're going to handle them yourself, so if you're going to deal with them on farm, well, then obviously you can try to bury them, you can incinerate them, you can compost them, uh, are probably the main options. He explains how he would determine the best method of disposal. Key considerations, if you're going to bury, is, of course, geology. It's, it's a, the, the strength of the liquid that results and the amount of it is, is, is actually about four times that of manure. So you want to make sure your geology, if you're going to try burying them, is, is such that you're not going to get transport. If you're going to consider composting, well, then you actually have to, you're going to need a carbon source. So you need either wood chips or you need straw or you, and then you need someone nearby that's going to take the compost. Um, and if you're going to burn them, you could build an incinerator, but then there are quite tight restrictions on particulate matter um, to, to actually reach, uh, uh, meet these requirements. So. Fonstead tells us what factors need to be considered when burying dead stock. Well, like I said, the, the big consideration is the geology, the, 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 condu- the, ro- the fluid conductivity of the soil. So the uh, permeability of the soil is the big one. So if it's low enough and stuff isn't going to, water can't flow through the pores, you don't really have a problem. But if water can flow through the pores and you've got uh, uh, any kind of groundwater anywhere near, well, then you're going to want to use burial. Um, or you've got a line it. Well, then liners cost money, and it's if a liner gets punctured, and so there's there's all those considerations. He says there could be some longer-term implications with burial as well. Well, the longer-term implications is it's just like a, a a lagoon. It's just forevermore that site, even if it's decommissioned and everything leveled and pushed in, on the title of that site is going to be somewhere. There's going to be a, a, a nitrogen source or a nitrogen storage bubble in the soil. And again, as long as it's not, if it's got the high permeability or low permeability soil, it's not going to go anywhere. But forevermore, it's part of the site. Fonstead adds there's a number of factors to consider when composting dead stock. Well, composting, if you're, if you're raising sows and you're raising them in a concrete barn with, with, uh, that, with slats and no bedding, well then of course you haven't got a carbon source. So you've started out with this mass of nitrogen and uh, a five to one carbon to nitrogen ratio and you're trying to get it up to 30. So I gotta bro- haul in straw or wood chips or something to get the carbon to nitrogen. So now I have to act more material than I started with. And then in our weather, if you're going to compost in the winter, you've got to have about uh, two feet or 0.6 meters of, of blanket around this stuff of material. So then I've got to have that material plus a bed of it to sit on. And so at the end of the day, I may end up with a substantial more amount of stuff than I started with. Uh, and then i got to haul it away. So it takes, it takes effort, it takes labor, and it takes material to compost. It does work, though. He also comments on shallow burial composting. Well, shallow burial is, is only uh, two feet down and you bury, bury the straw, dead stock mix. But uh, again, in our climate with the colder weather, they don't seem to deteriorate as quickly as they do in warmer weather. So then it's a time thing. You still want to have them in a high spot so they're not subject to flooding. Um, you know, we haven't tried trees or something, but poplar trees might be a way to keep the, the nutrients near the surface. Uh, but it's going to take time to break that material down, and it's uh, it may take quite a few years. And if you have a really dry spot, you may just have bones that sort of mummify. And so, uh, But it can be farmed over. The nutrients are close enough to the surface that plant roots can get to them, and so there's some advantages. Fonstead doesn't believe incineration 
is a good option. In my opinion, I don't think it's terribly practical. It's just with the volume of animals, it might be okay if you've got one or two a week, but uh, to put energy into getting rid of something that you actually, you might as well compost it then or render it. Like there's, it's got value um, as a nutrient, but burning it off, just just throwing money at to throw money away. And he has this final message for hog producers. Well, it, it really depends on where you are. Everybody's going to have their own situation, so I think it's crunch the numbers. It's it, the, the message is they are your deads. They're not the rendering plants deads. They're not society deads. They are yours. But depending on your biosecurity and depending on um, you know your management and where you are, uh, there are solutions out there. You know, I know composting does work. If you can get it to a rendering plant, there is value in the tallow, um, and there is value in the meat and bone meal from an energy standpoint, uh, as we've shown. But it, it really does depend on where you are, what the geology of the site is, and what your management practices are. Dr. Terry Fonstad is the Associate Vice President of Research with the University of Saskatchewan. Farm Bulletin Board. It's day five of the Canadian Western Agribition in Regina. Starting in a few seconds' time, it's the Agribition Ranch Rodeo presented. Uh, and, of course, it's a, you can join them for a taste of ranch life. Ranch rodeo teams will go head-to-head in skill-testing events based on the everyday jobs of a typical working ranch. Then at 1.30, it's the Charlet Show. 6.30, the Hereford Bull Calf Jackpot. 7 o'clock is the Angus Sale. Also at 7 o'clock is the Maple Leaf Finals Rodeo. And at 9.30 is their Party on the Dirt. And that's today's Farm Bulletin Board. That'll do it for GX on Agriculture for today. Be sure to tune in again on Monday at 12.15 for another edition of the program. You've been listening to the GX on Agriculture podcast, brought to you by...